The Midnight Myth Podcast presents The Wheel of Ka, an exploration into Stephen King's epic The Dark Tower. This podcast is dedicated to discussion and analysis of The Dark Tower, a seven-book series written by the prolific American story slinger Stephen King. Say thank you, Sai. The gunslinger said, I used to think the most terrible thing would be to reach the Dark Tower and find the top room empty. The god of all universes, either dead or non-existent in the first place. But now, suppose there is someone there, Eddie. Someone in charge who turns out to be... He couldn't finish. Eddie could. Someone who turns out to be just another bum, huh? Is that it? God not dead, but feeble-minded and malicious? Welcome back, fellow travelers, on the path of the beam, Wheel of Ka, episode 11. Episode 11. Amazing, right? My goodness. We're almost at the end. This is crazy. We are very close. I'm very sad about that. Yeah, I I know. Sad and happy. Well, yeah, sure. Yes. Yeah, excited because we get to talk about the seventh book, but the truth is it's, it's, it's pretty fucking sad. Well, so here we are. We have finished the second half of Song of Susanna. Yes. So this is our Song of Susanna episode. So obviously, if you haven't read the second half of Song of Susanna, read it before you listen to this. Yes. But before we do that... Or don't, and just have no fucking clue what's going on. Yes. That's cool. That's fine. So my wife does. She hasn't read the series. She listens to every episode. Is like, I have no idea what you're talking about yet, but it made her read Stephen King. That is a real fan She loves Stephen King now. And she loves The Wheel of Cobb. Yes, sir. All right. Before we jump into the uh, Song of Susanna, because we have a ton to to discuss and talk about. Yes. I wanted to just kind of back up. A fan of the Wheel of Ka hit Ooh. us up on www.midnightmyth.com That's right. uh, by the name of BG. And BG is writing to us from Australia. And I wanted to take a minute and read this message because I thought it was very cool. In particular, it was some feedback around our episode on Wizard and Glass. Yes. In which we discussed Roland and Susanna getting together after Susan, uh, not Susanna, Susan, pardon right, me. Right, right. After Susan gets sexually assaulted by the mayor right. in, um, I'm blanking on the name of the town they live in. Hambury. Hambury, thank you. And we had discussed this and we had a lengthy discussion of like, does it really seem like it makes sense that this character, Susan, would go and then sleep with Roland after oh, yeah, the right. sexual assault? Right, it right, seemed right. a little odd to us. Sure. And let me read the message here. Hey guys, big fan of your podcast and the Dark Tower, obviously. I'm a detective from the Northern Territory Police in Australia. I listened to the episode about Wizard and Glass and was interested in what you were saying about it seeming unrealistic that Susan would sleep with Roland so soon after being sexually assaulted. I thought you may be interested to know it's actually very common for this to happen, and it's something we see quite often when working on sexual assault cases. The victim will often go and sleep with someone else in an attempt to normalize what happened. When I read DT the first time, it was prior to being a detective, and I've never really thought about it before, but after listening to The Wheel of Ka, I'm fascinated with whether King knew about this type of behavior in sexual assault victims, or whether this is a coincidence. I find the idea fascinating, so thought it might be of interest to you guys and the listenership. Keep up the good work, BG. Damn. One, BG, thank you. Thank you. you. Yeah, thank you for such an amazing... (gasps) Um, piece of feedback. That's one of the coolest things. I've never gotten feedback or like fan mail. Yeah. That's sweet. 
And it's a really interesting thought. And it goes to tell you that there are so many different perspective, perspectives, pardon me, and avenues that you can look at the Dark Tower. So on one hand, as I read that scene, I thought it seemed to rang a little false that like, shouldn't she be traumatized? And in reality, people that are going through trauma are not going to act the way I imagined them. They're right. going to act in the way they need to, right. to get over that trauma. And it's actually common that they will have a sexual experience they can can, can, can control, pardon me. Well, and also we're looking at it from a, you know, cisgendered, straight, white male point of view. So it's, you know, our point of view is very narrow. Also, you know, I, I can't relate to being a sexual assault victim. So I'm making assumptions. And so thank goodness for this email, which sets the record straight. So I appreciate that. Yeah, really great. And I do tend to imagine, and I don't know if this is true, but Stephen King has a reputation as a writer of being very research intensive. Oh, yeah. He has research assistants. He wants to make sure when he's putting something out there that it's consistent with some level of whatever normal he's trying to tell. Sure. Which is hard in a book like The Dark Tower, a series of books like The Dark Tower. <laughs> what the fuck's normal? Yeah, right, right. It's just going to keep getting weirder and weirder <laughs> as you go. But I would imagine that he probably did some research. I have no idea if that's true or not. But Dark Tower fans, if you have any thoughts, have any feedback, you want to drop us a contact, it's on midnightmyth.com. So that's the website that you can go to. Um, you that's can awesome. Hit, yeah, hit us up on Twitter. Yeah, at please. The Midnight Myth. You can hit me up personally on Twitter at, at Derek C. Jones 198. Um, and then and, we'll talk about you on the podcast, which will, will be great. Yeah, we'll absolutely mention Please. you on the podcast. While I'm here, give us a rating or a review on iTunes. If you want to, please feel free to buy some amazing Mid Wheel of Cobb Midnight Myth merch. Buy that merch. And uh, we have a Patreon on the Midnight Myth. And uh, all right, so I plugged everything that needs to be plugged. Genius. Laurel will be very proud of me. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, Laurel, if you're new to the Wheel of Con, this is your first listen. <laughs> she is my wife. We host the Midnight Myth, the weekly podcast. It's excellent. And here is our Dark Tower bonus podcast. All right. Second half of this book. Steve, how you feeling, man? I'm feeling, I, oh, I'm tired. I'm right, right in the middle of a big conference that I work for that happens next week. So this is like my last two hours of brain power, and I don't know a better way to spend it, which is great. So I'm psyched. I'm excited to talk about this. I'm loving we're getting your last ounce of brain oh. power. For the well, and God. also, you know, to be completely transparent, this is the first time where I've recorded a podcast where like I, the book ended a while ago. And so it, I like, am I going to grasp it? What happens? But I think we had a pretty good conversation beforehand. Like, I think we know where we're at. The second half of the book goes relatively quickly. Um, we have one, what I consider a major road bump, but we'll get there. Uh, but other than that, I mean, it, it moves pretty smoothly. There's a lot of action. Things are still moving forward. I think when we left off last time, uh, we talked about how, how Susanna is openly helping Mia, which is crazy. I don't know about you. Uh, we talked about maybe asking what the dark tower is. I don't think it's changed. I don't know about you. I don't know if you want to, if, if you think the tower represents something different than it does in the first half of the book. I don't think it does. Yeah. I don't think it changes the tower symbolically right. in the first half to the second half, but I do think it's worth understanding the tower in part of a now more fleshed out Stephen King cosmology. Talk about it, please. You know that there are, there is this ancient magical force called the prim where all magic comes from. And we learned this from Mia 
and that it wasn't until humans started inventing machines and science that magic was suppressed and left the world. We understand that there is now this sort of almost god or deity or force for good called Gan, who Gan seems to be transmitting the Dark Tower through Stephen King, which I think we should talk about when we do our character analysis. And that the tower is part of a much more structured you know, metaphysical outlook that we see with King and that Mm -hmm. there is multiple dimensions of reality happening across multiple timelines that they are linked magically and that it's almost, it's almost foolhardy that we thought science and machines and technology could keep this all together because without magic locking it together, it really starts to unravel. Yeah, sure. And there is this sort of more mystical, magical element to it. You know, the quote that you pulled to read at the beginning yeah. is about the absolute horror of thinking God is an idiot or God is a deceiver or God is up to no good. Right. You know, before the question is, is the tower even real? Right. Is there anything living at the top of the tower? Is there a God? Is there not a God? Is there even a real tower? Are these just symbols? Now we've gotten to the point where the concern is, there's probably a God, but is it a good one? And that's the thing. Like, have I spent all this time, my my entire existence, trying to get to this place? Am I going to get to the top and it's just going to be another asshole? Yeah. Is it just going to be another Roland? Another emotionless killer at the top? Or worse, a nitwit. Right. Or some, exactly. Or somebody who has a lot of power and is a fucking moron. It's like, oh, I created this multiverse. Whoops. Didn't yeah, I mean guess to we do don't, that. We don't, yeah. know any, we don't know about any of that these days, do we? Yeah. I mean, and that is a ancient thought process. Sure. When it comes to reflecting on theology and reflecting philosophically, you know, there is, and this is not so ancient, more modern, but there is a thought that happened in Enlightenment philosophy is what if God exists and is a deceiver? How can we trust our perceptions if God is not trustworthy innately? Sure. And that's a thing that, you know, Descartes reasoned out, you know, and he came up with, I think, therefore I am, which is a direct response to if God exists and is a deceiver, how can I know anything? Mm-hmm. Well, if God exists and is a deceiver, I think, and I know I'm thinking, therefore I am, therefore my de- perceptions are true. Therefore, if God exists, he's not a deceiver. Interesting. Is a long line of philosophical inquiry culminating in Rene Descartes. Now, some have criticized it since then, but I digress. Getting way far ahead of myself. I feel that the tower is is more cosmologically relevant in this Mm -hmm. one in that there are all these other different magical forces. There's now this sort of deity figure called Gan. There's now this clear Satan figure called the Crimson King. Mm -hmm. And there are these mystical forces that are opposing each other, both of light and darkness. And we're now living within this battle. We have characters like Eddie and Roland sensing the magic and feeling the dread of the journey's end. We have characters like Jake and uh, Callahan being like, we're going to walk into this place. We're going to cross this threshold Mm -hmm. and we're going to die for this quest. Yeah, right. Right. And we know this before we do it. This may mean something that may not. Let's say our last rites because we are dead. We are giving our lives here. Mm-hmm. And we have these just amazing moments for these characters. Oh, God, I'm getting goosebumps just well, thinking yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, sure. I'm getting sure. goose flesh. But yes, so I think the tower is very much still the same in the first half to the second half. A long way to say that. Sure. 
Sure. Now, but it's but it's through a different lens, so it makes sense. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So how about you? How are you feeling with the tower? I mean, I don't, I don't feel much different. I, I, you know, right now we're at such a precipice of like getting there that that as an only child <laughs> and a grown man who's never really grown up, I'm like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are right. we there yet? So really, like, I haven't thought much about the tower itself because. I'm so wrapped up in the, in the characters right now. I'm so wrapped up in the journey, you know, where before, like I focused a little bit more on the dark tower, the dark tower itself, the object of was, was more appealing where now it's like, I, in my heart, we're going to get there. So I'm not really going to worry about that right now. There's all this, how it works has changed. Now we know there are levels for real and that there is somebody like you said, or something at the top level. You know, and so we know we know it's real. We're gonna we're gonna get there. We're gonna get there. Absolutely. We own the rose now, baby. We own the rose. We own the rose. We own the rose. All right. So let's let's just <laughs> flesh out pragmatically some plot points that happen <coughs> um, in the second half of the book. They buy the rose from Calvin Tower for the dollar. Uh, Roland and Eddie they go and they meet Stephen King, and they have that amazing, bizarre, weird scene with them and Stephen King. Let's talk about that for a second because, sure. Uh, because I, because I don't think that Stephen King is part of the quartet. So I want to do his character analysis or his piece separately. Once again, I wish you could all see the hand gestures <laughs> that I'm they're using. All they're the all place. over the place right now. <laughs> but how do you feel about that? Oh, big question. I, because I don't know if he's the architect then I don't think he can truly be a piece of the quartet. All right. So the question at hand to make sure I understand Roland and Eddie, they feel this pull to go see Stephen King. They see Stephen King as they're getting closer to Stephen King. They are hearing the chimes of Todash, but they're not like terrifying. I think Eddie calls it anti Todash at one point. They meet Stephen King. They have this conversation. Roland hypnotizes him. And the question at hand is, is Stephen King part of the content? Well, like, do we analyze him now as his own thing or do we include him as as the content? I think we should hold him separately from the content. Right. Okay. That, that, perfect. I, I, I can't think of him as part of the content. No, because he's the architect. Because even though he is a part of this story, he is most certainly a part of uh, from the story. Okay, we're on the same wavelength. Yeah. Cool, let's, so let's talk about him now. Okay. First time I read the book, hated this piece. Was like so juvenile about it too. Oh, Stephen King must have had writer's block. He got to put himself in this book. Oh, Jesus Christ. Like now we got to get to... And so now we have to deal with the fact that like he's a, he's a literal fucking character in this book. I, I've been incorrect many times about my initial response to this which I've learned about me in my life, Derek. I have to watch things multiple times. I I do. I I have learned that about myself. So reading through it the second time, I thought it was brilliant. He has to be in this story. This is Stephen King's story. This is his universe. This is his world. This is, for all intents and purposes, there's my phrase, I think that Stephen King wrote this. This is his manifesto on the way that Stephen King sees how life and existence and the world works. Otherwise, he wouldn't connect every other novel he's ever written to it. Yeah, I I very much in agreement with you. My first time around reading this and getting the hints in Wolves of the Kala that Stephen King was a character, I was like, 
interesting. <laughs> Books just don't do that. No. Then reading this one with him being a full-on character, I was like, you know, I, to me, I thought it was very self-indulgent. Oh, Stephen King. Oh, yeah. You're so fucking important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got to write yourself into your own fucking novel <laughs> because writing a novel can save the universe. Me, me, me. Right. And that was my reaction to it. And I promised myself doing this podcast, doing this project, that I was going to reread the parts of The Tower that I didn't like as much the first time with a fresh, open mind. I wasn't going to prejudge. Yeah, sure. And I am in total agreement with you. I was wrong. I was wrong. Yeah. I think it. the groundwork has been laid very early that narrative and storytelling inter, interlocks and that every time we tell a story, we breathe life into the universe. And that Stephen King writes himself into this because I think there's a part of King that, and I don't know if this is true or not, because I'm not a Stephen King biographer, so I could be pulling this out of my ass, mm. that truly thinks Gan is transmitting the novels through him. Mm. Sure. And that part of his mission is to literally just transmit these. I'm so happy you brought that up, because I have a quote this week, Derek. I actually have a quote. Whoa. I picked a quote. Whoa. Things are changing, What's bud. the over-under on that, man? <laughs> <laughs> I have a quote. Let's if, hear it. If you'll allow me. Of course. Okay, great. So it says, King looked back at Roland. Quote, as the man with no name, a fantasy version of Clint Eastwood, you were okay. A lot of fun to partner up with. Roland says, is that how you think of it? King says, yes. But then you changed. Right under my hand. It got so I couldn't tell if you were the hero, the anti-hero, or no hero at all. When you let the kid drop, that was the capper. Roland says, you said you made me do that. And King writes, looking Roland straight in the eyes, blue meeting blue amid the endless choir of voices. King said, quote, I lied, brother. <laughs> so King is telling us that like of all the things that he's written, Roland still has... The, and, and this to your point that Gan is transmitting and that King is not inventing, because if Roland is able to make certain choices and he chooses to sacrifice Jake, I want to put a pin in this, actually. We can keep talking about it, but at the end of the next, when we get to the end of the book, I want to talk about that. Because what are the decisions throughout the book? Now it makes me think, well, fuck, what did Roland choose and what did Gan transmit? I, at this point, I have no idea. Well, think about it like this. So another layer, because I love where your, your head's at on this. One, great quote. Thank you for pulling that out. Two, if Stephen King doesn't choose to drop Roland in when he wrote The Gunslinger, and the character Roland doesn't choose but is told to do it by some other power... Is there even free will in any of this at oh, all? Man. Is there anyone anywhere <laughs> who ever actually made a tangible choice? And I wonder if that's the comment that King is trying to make. Was was Roland just being Roland and King grabbed into his universe and wrote it down? Or was it coming from Gan? Is there free will at all? Listen, man, I'm in therapy for enough. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's, an, it's an important question because I do think that King is making a comment that the universe is messy. 
And if your brain can imagine all of these weird, crazy, fucked up things that Stephen King has imagined, sure. there's some element of truth implicit in it. Interesting. And I don't think King knows the answer whether that's a tangible material truth in the way that like I'm sitting on a chair right now sure, sure. in a podcast studio sure. or a symbolic truth the way that we tell kids Santa Claus delivers presents. Right, right. I don't know if it's a how how fundamentally true the truth is and how objectively true the truth is. But then on some level he's saying if I can breathe life into this Roland and if Roland's quest for the Dark Tower can consume me the way that Dark Tower has consumed Roland mm-hmm. Isn't there some level of truth that maybe I didn't decide to drop the kid? Maybe Roland did. Maybe Gan did. You know, and I think this is this, and this is why writing Stephen King into it is so interesting Mm -hmm. because it brings about these really deep, complex questions. What does it mean if your life is the story in someone else's novel? Mm -hmm. You know, we see both Roland and Eddie kind of grapple with this and to the credit of these characters, they fucking roll with it, man. Well, you know, Callahan has to do it on his own. When he finds the book and all of a sudden it's like, wait, what? What the fuck is real and is not real? What is happening? I'm a character in a book that some dude in Maine wrote? Like, what? No, and, man, you're, yep, you're right and, on. And every answer gives you 18 new questions you didn't even think about. And in many ways... As we go through this thing called being alive now, when we get answers to complex questions, they often lead to just more questions. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's as true with, uh, you know, quantum physics as it is sure. to moral philosophy as it is to am I working in the right job? Right. You know, sure. the, the more times you get an answer, then suddenly you have a whole new set of questions you didn't even think about. Well, and you know, I think the first time around when I read it, I was blinded by my anger about him, my own hubris about like, oh, well, a writer shouldn't be in his own story. Well, fuck me, because I didn't take a step back and realize just how brilliant, how deep it actually goes. And, and I had a friend tell me who was like, yeah, you know, I felt the same way at first. But then if you really if you really dig into that meat, I mean, you, you know, it, it's there. Oh, yeah. It's there. Once you start pulling the thread of that sweater, it's the, you're like, what the fuck does all of this mean? We, we, listen, we've got imagery for days, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, yes, we, we do. Imagery for days. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really, it is a really interesting point. You know, Eddie talks about how as they're getting closer and closer there and he's hearing these anti-Todash times. You know, I'm going to give a quote because you- Oh, I was waiting. Let me give a quote. <laughs> And it, it is a little bit of a longer one, but they're on their way, and I'm going to hopefully not brutalize it. That was the best he could do, and they were very much in the heart of the beam. Eddie could feel it carrying them like a river rushing down the edge towards a waterfall. But I'm afraid, said Roland. I feel as though we're approaching the center of everything, the tower itself may hap. It's as if, after all these years, the quest itself has become the point for me, in the end, it's frightening. He dropped the transmission from their borrowed Ford into drive and started rolling forward. His heart was beating in his chest with slow, exclamatory force. He wondered if Moses had felt like this when he approached the burning bush which contained God. He wondered if Jacob felt like this, awakening to find a stranger, but radiant and fair in his camp, the angel with whom he would wrestle. He thought that they probably had. 
He felt sure that another part of the journey was about to come to an end. Another answer lay up ahead. God living on Kansas Road in the town of Bridgeton, Maine. It sounded crazy, but it didn't. Just don't strike me dead, Eddie thought and turned west. I need to get back to my sweetheart, so please don't strike me dead, whoever or whatever you are. Man, I'm so scared, he said. Roland reached out and briefly squeezed his hand. And that's a very Ugh. similar style quote where Roland is afraid and we get this inner monologue with, with you know, Eddie thinking, Am I, I'm on this journey to see God and I'm at this precipice like Moses, like Jacob, and at the end like, oh, just whatever you are, let me see my wife one last time. I think this is a great time to start with the quartet. Let's talk the quartet. Let's talk about Eddie. We want to talk about Eddie. Yeah, go ahead. No, you're, you're killing it. Okay. I think Eddie has come so far at the second half of this book. The farthest. Riddled with bullet holes, with a concussion. He has to hold his temper back with Calvin Tower <laughs> in order to get him to sign over the property with the rose. He wants to kill that motherfucker so bad. Something yeah. that he couldn't do for throughout most of his journey. No, not at all. And he has to hold it back and let Roland convince Calvin Tower to sign it over. And Eddie does his part really well. He's learning patience. Eddie then driving to see Stephen King. It is Eddie who's like, we, I know how time is rushed. I know that we have a lot to do. I know I have my wife to find and save. But we have to see Stephen King. But this is important. This is a big piece. It, like he feels the force. It's Eddie putting the quest above his desires. Ugh. It's him saying, there's something calling me that's more important. Yes, my, my, my fight to find my wife is the most important thing to me. But this is more important. And that, that tells me that Eddie thinks he's going to find Susanna. That he is, even though he doubts, I think he is confident that they're going to find Susanna. Well, the one thing that they have, through Susanna's power with the Dogen, he knows she's alive. Right, right. So he's has, he has that nugget of hope to hold on to. I think if he didn't have that, it may, might be different for him. Well, and also, I mean, up until this point, you know, Eddie's quest has been Susanna. As long as Susanna's by my side, I'll do whatever. Well, now she's not. She's a fucking different time and place. And now you realize that in order to get her back, you have to follow this path of the beam. And that means following the intuition of Ka. And that if Ka has ruled this long and they're still alive, might as well roll with it till the end. Yeah, I totally love it. I think that very succinctly sums up where Eddie's at right now. And I now. said this from the beginning, you know, that I felt that Roland and Eddie share an uncle nephew relationship and i still feel that way and i feel that way even more in this scene where but this time eddie has taken the parental role oh interesting eddie coming into his own living as a man growing up now learning patience having a wife having real responsibility other than taking care of your deadbeat brother and your fucking insane mother now you have a I hate using this word, but it's true. You have a legacy to protect. You have a legacy to start. You have a group of family members that you that you love and care about. You've put your literal fucking body on the line. I said this from the beginning. I, I feel that they're an uncle, 
you know, nephew relationship, but I also felt that Eddie has the most change in his character arc. He is the biggest change, and by far, this is the book that shows you, holy shit, Eddie Dean is a much different person than he was when we first met him in Drawing of the Three. Yep, I love that. And I also love in the quote that I pulled out that Eddie looks to his din, who he is a warrior for, and says, man, I'm scared. I'm fucking scared. And Roland holds his hand. That is just a... I mean, these characters were ready to kill each other when they first met. Yeah. Literally ready and trying to kill each other have gotten to the point where they are sharing their deepest anxieties. They can't live without one another. Literally. They're holding hands. They're like the two of the most toughest, badass warriors in the multiverse. And I will, I will argue that that shit is tough. That showing real emotion to another person, having a moment like that, regardless of gender is tough. Hey, I'm admitting that I'm fucking scared. Well, I'm admitting that I am too, but I want you to know something. You don't have to go through it alone. We'll be scared together. An interesting thought. Huge change with Roland. Moses was probably terrified. Oh, come on. Right? Are you fucking kidding me? It so humanizes the idea of these mythic figures. I mean, put yourself in that situation. It's fucking insane. A bush is burning. I'm meeting God. What the fuck? He's giving me tablets. Like these new rules I have to follow. Listen, I know the drugs are good, but come on, man. That's, this is insane. Yeah. And you have to be terrified. And the closer you get to the tower, the more scared you become. And I love, and let's move on to Roland. I love the humanizing moments of Roland because, you know, we look, how many stories have to tell us that, that people are ruthless killers? Like we get that. Right. And that's cool. I love it. You know, I'm, I'm still a 12 year old boy at heart. I love, I love gunfights in books, in movie. I love the action, but like truthfully at the end of the day, the thing I really get off on are moments when like Eddie and, and Roland are holding hands and admitting that they're terrified. Because the quest has become the point for me. In the end, it's frightening. You know? Because well, to me, Cotet is no different than family. That's what that is. Like, you don't, you don't get to choose your family. We, we, we kind of say that sometimes, right? Like, oh, I, you know, you're the family that I chose. Like, all my friends, you, Laurel, uh, so many of my friends, the family that I've chosen. But, like, the family that you're born with, like... In this story, Eddie and Jake and Roland and Susanna are infinitely, and, and, and Callahan are infinitely connected. And Oi. Why? Well, I cannot leave Oi out of this. No, you can't. Boy, oh boy. But, you, you know, I, and to me, Roland has a huge character arc, but Roland's, like, Roland's going to be Roland. I know his story. You know what I mean? Yep. And I I'm do. always going to be interested by him. Right. You know, and in, it's nice to see him be super vulnerable in this moment. Yeah. It really is. I also really enjoyed when Roland hypnotizes Stephen King. Oh, when he's hypnotizes anybody, it's, it's incredible. But when he hypnotizes the architect, it's intense. And we realize that there is a like male, malevolent, malevolent is the word I'm looking for. Yep. Malevolent force trying to stop Stephen King from writing the dark tower. And that, as soon as Stephen King gets closer to it, he gets closer to his own demise. And Roland hypnotizing him and getting this out of Stephen King, I thought was one of the more perplexing, bizarre, metaphysical moments. 
I mean, this gets super meta. Oh, could you imagine being Roland? Okay, I am hypnotizing the person who, in theory, created me or is just writing me down through through Gan's interpretations. And so now I'm going to reach into his brain for real-time answers. Absolutely. I'm sorry. What Did we just drop a tab of acid? What just happened? Yes, it's very, very <laughs> insane. But I do think the ultimate point that writing King in and having Roland and King meet means at least about what King might be saying about storytelling is that we are channeling these characters. Great writers don't really have much choice. The characters come to them. Sure. But Stephen King has this, I was had just finished reading Dr. Sleep and I'm in the epilogue and Stephen King mentions in the epilogue that he couldn't stop wondering where Danny was, Danny Torrance from The mm-hmm. Shining. If you've read Dr. Sleep and if you're a fan of this podcast, you probably have. And he found himself wondering, how old is Danny now? He found mm-hmm. himself wondering, I wonder how he did in school. And he had these questions as if Danny was a real person and then writing the next phase of his book was just writing the history or biography of this real person. And I think for King, that's that seems to be, at least in the Dark Tower, a more literal mm-hmm. experience rather than metaphorical. Sure. That these characters to King have a sense of life to them. Roland's real. Roland is going on this journey for the tower. And King's job is just to transmit it to this one level. Yeah, and we know that King has struggled with Roland. And like we, we know from this conversation that like he's constantly come back to this story and come back to it. Question for you. Yeah. Uh, about Roland and, and, and this moment with Stephen King. When Roland finds out that he's a character, how do you think that changes his quest? Do you think it rocks him at all? Do you think that, that, that it affects Roland and, and his view on the outcome of the situation? Basically what I mean, like does his quest for the tower change when he learns that he's a character? I think it changes in the respect that, so there's a few layers to this on the pure, just pragmatic mechanics of the story. He realizes now that protecting Stephen King is as important, if not more important than protecting the Rose. Right. So now there's another thing that they need to be worried about, which is King has to finish the story in order for the tower, for him to get to the tower. Mm -hmm. So it's linked pragmatically. His fate and King's fate are the same. I think there is a way that we can look at that is that if Stephen King were to die before this is done, so is Roland. Yeah, sure. So I think there is a literal way that we can look at that, that King and Roland, in order for there to be more stories about Roland, King must be alive. Mm -hmm. So protecting King does protect Roland in this interesting way. So I think on a pragmatic level, the character realizes that he, his fate is linked to Stephen King's fate, which ultimately is linked to the tower. In which no no other character in fiction, though I know, that has to protect the author of their story. No. Like Frodo Baggins wasn't trying to keep <laughs> Tolkien alive. You know, like that's just so fucking crazy. Sure. But I think philosophically to yeah. Roland, no. Yeah. At least okay. not at this point in the yeah, narrative. Yeah, sure. I don't see a major change to him. It's like, okay. There's a writer named King. He's writing this story. He's added to the objective. If the protecting rose, him. If the rose is gone, we're fucked. Yeah, if yeah, King yeah. is gone, we're, we're fucked. fucked. Yep. So let's just keep 
these things from being as unfucked as possible. Sure, okay. So King must be alive, the Rose must be protected, this gets us to the tower. Yeah, that makes sense. I think it's, like, philosophically to him, it's like, okay, we, we have a, a thing we need to do, mm-hmm. the quest is going to continue. Do you think it adds a different change I mean, quite literally in the book, probably not. I mean, I agree with a lot of what you said. You know, I mean, as an actor, I constantly ask myself, like, oh, well, has Roland's motivation changed? Like, maybe there's something about this now where he's he starts to question it even more. Should I continue on this quest? You know, even though I have to keep him alive, is, is continuing my story important anymore? I don't know. Like, I just, if I were to play Roland as an actor, which will never happen, but if I were, those are some of the questions in that moment I would ask myself. Does it really like does it really change his psyche? I agree with you, I don't think it does. But it would be interesting, like if we could have a conversation with Roland, if in that moment he was like, Man, does any of this fuck it, does it matter? Right. Does it matter? And you keep in mind that Roland comes from a world that's already magical, mm-hmm. where time right. has already slipped, where he has been battling a wizard across dimensions of time in space. He's walked into people's minds and controlled them. Right. You know, like he's gone through so much. The idea that there's now an author he needs to keep alive in the quote unquote true real world Mm -hmm. in order for the story to happen to him. It's not all that weird compared compared to to the list, I guess, compared to throwing jawbones on the fire to see the future, (laughs) you know, like, so it's like, if you, if you think about it to roll it, is it really all that weird? Probably not weirder than what he's been through. It's just another part of his journey. That's probably just my projection. Like my interest, you know, in, in like, you know, I'm going to, you know, psychoanalyze Roland and see if, which I think is very valuable, but I think it does speak to the character, especially at this point, Mm -hmm. This point, Roland and Eddie are results driven. Sure. They are not introspective. They're not going to sit down in, you know, a quiet place and meditate on what these events mean. Because they quite frankly don't have the time to. True. If they were to pause and really think about this and really try to meditate on the, the philosophical implications of King writing them into existence and them having to keep King alive to continue to write them into existence they would probably miss the opportunity to save mm-hmm. Susanna or even mm-hmm. get to the tower. So they are such results-oriented characters on such a time crunch that they don't really have the luxury of pausing and reflecting. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, if it were me and I met the author who was writing my story, I would be broken for forever. Absolutely. Tower be damned. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know? <laughs> like, yeah. Like, I couldn't stop thinking about it and be like, what does any of this mean? My life is a lie. Oh, well, exactly. Yeah. Um, Other Cotet members? Let's uh, want to talk about Callahan, Jake? Let's, yeah, let's talk about Callahan first. Um, so I think the second half of the book, there's not a lot with Callahan and Jake's story. No, not really. I mean, we know that they, you know, we know that they're trying in a different part of New York, you know, to convince Calvin Tower, but then that, that kind of becomes moot because... Roland and Eddie get to him. So I'm almost a little confused. There's a few good nuggets. There are. I don't remember if this happens in the first half or second half, but they get Black 13. They get Black 13. That's the first half. Okay. And they put it in the storage locker. Yes. In the World Trade Center. I think that's this half. That's this half. Okay. So let's talk about that because that's significant. Jesus. One of the most 
horrible moments of my life was September 11th, 2001. Many people listening, depending on how old you are, Mm because that's a thing now. Sure. That was a moment that you remember. I was in freshman English class in high school. I was 14. Wow. I, uh, I was, I'm a little older than you, so I was out of high school. You know, Age is relative, bro. Uh, no, it's not. But <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I got a phone call from a friend of mine whose father worked in the trade, in the trade center. And Dude, my English teacher's brother worked in the trade center, which is why we knew about it. Luck- luckily, my friend's father was not in the office. Was same. Was just by happenstance, not in the office when that happened, and it was just insane. And I get the sense that Black Thirteen getting to the World Trade Center in Stephen King's mind is a cathartic way to meditate on that moment. He puts the most evil object of the Merlin's rainbow in a place that gets destroyed and has the characters say, I think it's safe. As long as the building doesn't come down, I think we're okay. Mm. And literally has the characters talk about it. Can I tell a personal story Absolutely. about this? Cause it's a subject that does mean a lot to me. Sure. The day before, September 10th, 2001, I was in Hoboken, New Jersey. Now, if you don't know your geography, Hoboken, New Jersey is on the river across from Manhattan. Mm -hmm. I went there for a friend's birthday. That's where Sinatra's from. And we got dinner, and we were walking along the river, and we were looking at the Manhattan skyline. And I said to my friend on his birthday... I don't think I've seen anything prettier than this. The sun is setting and I'm looking at the two towers and I'm thinking literally to myself, humanity is great. And the next day, the towers get attacked. I've seen them the day before they fell. And the reason I tell this story is I think there's something really amazing and cathartic, like knowing that, you know, maybe... It's not that human beings are just so unbelievably fucked up and terrible Mm -hmm. that we would do this thing. It's that there was this evil orb there, Mm. you know, and like, and that's what potentially had some reason why it was even targeted. Sure. And I know that is a flight of fancy and one might say that's also naive, but this is also a novel. So it's also fiction. It's fiction. And I think it's cathartic for me personally. Well, And I think, I think you use the right phrase that that's Stephen King's meditation on it. And I think that's the right way to put it because it could also just be coincidence, but not really. I mean, the book was written way after 2001. So I, I agree with using that. It was a meditation on it. I think it's the best way to put it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And he uses two really great characters. He uses Jake, who is one of, if not my favorite characters. And he also uses Callahan, which I love in Wolves of the Calla. Mm-hmm. So he uses characters that even though we've discussed Callahan doing some weird things in particular with aborting Susanna's baby in Wolves of the Calla, but fundamentally a character that I think represents a raw goodness and redemption. Mm -hmm. The ability at the end of your life to decide to become a good person and give back to a community. Sure, Jake, who's a child who inherently represents innocence, who is in this story partially because the man in black and Roland are playing an evil fucked up game. And Jake just happened to be on the wrong street at the wrong time. Right. 
you know, and that's why Jake is involved in this. And so very innocently involved in this and trying his very best and doing some, some of the most brave heroics in the entire series. And at this point you're asking a 12 year old to become an adult much, much earlier than he ever should have and fight in battles. And he does. And the fact that these two characters accept their intimate demise at the Dixie pig, I think having them place this object into the world trade center had a sense of symbolic importance to me Mm -hmm. that I thought was fantastic writing. It resonated with my experience of remembering nine 11. And I definitely think Stephen King was remembering nine 11 by doing that. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. Oi. I love Oi. I mean, there's at this point, like there's not much more to say other than Oi is the best. Should we talk at all about the God bomb? Well, yeah. Once we get through the content, we have one more person. Okay. We have to do Susanna. Let's save Susanna. Because okay. it is her book. All right, great. Let's, let's talk sa- about the God Bomb. Yeah. Let, the, the God, God Bomb. bomb. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what do you think is up with this character? So he is he is Henrik of the Manny. In, right. I forget the character's name because it's been a few weeks since I've read it. And he is out there professing the God Bomb. Well, he's in New York. Could be another meditation on the same thing we just talked about. It could also just be... No matter where you are in time, space, history, people believe that there's going to be something that is going to wipe out humanity, no matter what it is. And we've seen examples of it within the book series, but this is, I would not say that this is a nuclear war book series. Yeah, as much as I think nuclear Armageddon plays a role in the mid-world part. Sure. Now that we're in the end world slash the key world, true world, nuclear war is not as much a well, theme. That, and that's the thing, because nuclear war is in the past. The old ones were the ones that created that. But in every generation, there is somebody warning of the end times. While you're making that very good point, I just looked up the God Bomb reference name because I forgot. Oh, sure. It is Reverend Earl Harrigan. Right. Who looks like the henchek of the Manny. Right. So it's like he is this shadow form, other form of henchek of the Manny. Or it actually is henchek. Who knows? And he is, you know, he is out there and um, he is preaching about the God bomb coming. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think there's this obviously like God bomb, H bomb, a bomb. Like there's this like clear, like nuclear component to it. And we do know that Midworld got blown up in a nuclear war. We By can the surmise, old ones. Yep. like we can put all the, the the clues together. So yes, I think there's this apocalyptic moment there. But I also think it's really interesting that this character happens to be there to both hear Susanna's thoughts mm. and help Jake and Callahan get to the Dixie Pig. Sure. And I think there is this moment of um, Joseph Campbell talks about this in A Hero with a Thousand Faces, uh, the spiritual helper. Oh, sure. Right? That archetype. So he is yeah, this, that, that makes a lot more this sense. character there that's helped to usher in. But yet we're also at the precipice of the potential end of the multiverse. And there are characters tuned in. And he is tuned in. Like, he's literally warning about the God Bomb, which is... The end of everything. Fuck, dude. I didn't even think of... I'm over here. My mind is blown. I didn't even <laughs> think about that. You know, because we, 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 we... And he has... And he is able to get the touch from Susanna. And so he's a little tuned in to the cosmic drama. 
And we see other characters that have some, like they're clued into this in some way or some form. They don't know how or why. Calvin Tower is one. Yeah. Uh, that's the character that gets his acne cured. I don't even remember what book that's I, in. No, well, I you remember that? I think it's the fifth one. I think it's just randomly. It randomly happens. Right? He's like, yeah, I come to this place. We've even talked about it. And my acne is it's gone. Acne is He's gone. just like kind of clued into <laughs> the, like this cosmic drama that's happened. Right, right, right. And this reverend is too. I, I love that the reverend is also like, you're going to give me a ticket? Well, guess what? I don't care, cop, because it's the God Ball. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Um. So we've talked about, I think we've talked about the whole content. Except for Susanna. Except for Susanna. So yeah. we've been saving her for the end. What are your thoughts on Susanna in this? Well, you know, you and I talked a little bit before this, because we, we talked a little at the first half of this episode about Susanna actively choosing to help Mia. And and I meditated that on that a little bit. I mean, honestly, to me... It shows how selfless Susanna at the end of the day really is and that she is willing. I mean, I mean, look, you know, Mia is a part of her consciousness, so they are directly connected. So like in order for Susanna to survive in certain ways, Mia has to survive. So, you know, human instinct is, yes, I have to keep this this woman alive. But it's the way that she does it. My mother used to say growing up, it's not what you say. It's how you say it. And that used to piss me off. It's not what you say. It's how you say it. In certain ways, that's bullshit. But what she meant by that was like, basically the way I'm going to communicate this, it might not be about what I'm saying. It's the way I'm communicating that to you. I literally just said it verbatim. It's fine. Whatever. <laughs> You're you, doing you, great. You, thank you. I need, I appreciate you. Yeah, I need keep it that. going. But you know, like at, at the end of the day, I didn't expect Susanna to do that. Susanna of all the people in the quartet is not the person that I thought in her character arc, she's going to do whatever it is to help somebody else. That's not part of the quartet. Right. Yeah, she is the most, the second most ruthless killer. Oh, absolutely. My God. Of all of, I mean, other than Roland? Yeah. There's no question. So I think it humanizes Susanna even further, which is nice, because for a long time, I felt like she was, uh, I felt like she was a prop. There's still a piece of me that feels that the pregnancy is a bit cheap. Honestly, we'll get to that in further podcast but i do think that having her be the pregnant person the person carrying a child through this is a little cheap but other than that i think she's grown a lot through this book i mean i mean there'd be no reason to focus on her in an entire book title it the song of susanna if she's not going to grow as a character well yeah i mean it's an interesting thing that you said because in the epilogue the epilogue has all of these different excerpts from Stephen King's journal. And it's a really interesting, cool epilogue because at it the is. end of it, Stephen King dies. We get his obituary being killed in a car accident. More on that in the next book. Right. But in it, he says, oh, Susanna's pregnant. You kind of waste a character when you make them pregnant. And it's so, you know. And it's like, he's kind of saying to us, yeah, he realized making her pregnant was probably a tough choice and, and the wrong choice if it was a choice at all, because maybe Gans transmitting to him, which has been the theme of this 
particular episode. No, I think you're right. But he does say that in the I mean, epilogue. he fucking admits it. That it's a tough thing to write a character we out of. We have trashed him for writing terrible women in this book series. And at the sixth book, he's like, oh, no, 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 I know I'm bad at it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely yeah, bad yeah, at it. I really fucked that yeah, part I'm up. totally. That was stupid. <laughs> um, a few things that I'd like to talk about with at least Susanna's character journey at the second half. Because yeah, I think yeah. the major character work happens in the first half. I agree. I think in the second half, now she's helping Susanna get to the Dixie pig. I think the major character work for Eddie and Roland happened in the second half because they meet Stephen King. Right. So I think in the first half, Roland and Eddie are in a gunfight. So I think it's kind of flipped where there's more action for Susanna in the second half. It's more character in the first and vice versa for the other members. It is. So the Dixie pig is interesting because I feel like that is like a, truly unique disgusting stephen king horror scene oh yeah there are like these low men low men they're the tahin which we now get to see are these humans with animal heads human bodies there's a doctor that's being like beaten for being too insolent to to, you know to the low men like imagine i'm sorry imagine just like a gangster you know, your stereotypical, I'm Italian, so I can say this, your stereotypical Italian gangster suit, pinstripes, but it has like a pigeon head. Yeah. that that That's the tahine. I think it's hilarious. And there are vampires. There are like like psychic bugs. Yeah, it's insane. And they're eating babies. Right. Like it is like. The Dixie Pig is fucked. It is so like it is so insane. It's walking into the den of monsters and demons. Yeah. And Susanna and Mia walk in there. And the one thing that's interesting with the character is Mia realizes pretty early in walking in there, like, these are the people I gave up my immortality for. Like And she realizes it right away. Like, holy shit, I have severely fucked up. And you know, Susanna's been telling her the whole time. It's not like she hasn't been warned. Yep. Hubris, man. And Susanna even says, let's go to a hospital. We'll have the baby together, but let's not, like, we can't trust what says a Robert Sayer RS. We can't trust RS at all. And he turns out to be a total creep. Yeah, of course. And then they, like, link their their bodies psychically to separate, like, they put, like, a brain-sucking machine, realize that Susanna gets walked into through into another dimension where they're probably taking the kids from Bulls of the Kala and they like psychically separate Mia from her for the baby to happen. It feels like to me the Dixie Pig is the first time in a while in this book series where Stephen King is going like full horror. I think the last time was... Well, I mean, wolves. Is there the vampires? Ah, the vampires? Yeah, yeah. But other than that, I know what you mean. I but hear what you mean. Even then, the vampires are like, Callahan is stalking recalling and fighting them. Recalling story. Like, yeah. Like, Jake has to fight a haunted house to pass <laughs> through the Gulf. That was pretty horrifying. Uh, that was a while ago. And that was a long time ago. The Dixie Pig is like, oh, God, a den of disgusting, gross yeah. monsters. And we see full on who the servants of the Crimson King are. But I don't think there's a ton in the second half that I can recall, at least right now, of major character moments for Mia and Susanna. I think they're no. at they're at the point where they're about to have a baby. Right. Jake is giving military advice to Callahan on like, we yell, we scream, we keep moving, we don't stop till we die. Right. 
Callahan's like, well, if that's going to be it, last rites, their story ends. Right. And a major cliffhanger for all three of those characters. They're all in the same spot, and we know shit's about to go down. She's Mia's going to have the baby. Susanna is there. And then Jake and Callahan are about to fight this insane den of monsters. But beyond that, not a ton to say. No. About her character in the second half. No. All right. Well, any final thoughts then? We've gone through the content. We've talked about the tower. We've talked about the philosophy, the, the, the <coughs> metaphysics and meta aspect of having King being a character in the story that he's actively writing. I mean, I think we have to get to the tower. I mean, I don't have anything else for this book. I have to tell you, there is a piece of me that is very excited to read the last one, but very sad. And that is definitely a Steve thing. Like, yeah. it, like I know it's a good thing. We're going to get there. And it's not the end, but it's the last one. 11 episodes. That's going to be like 12th and 13th. Our last episode is going to be 13. Like Black 13. That's crazy. Well, there's a lot... A lot to the last book, a lot to there this is. book. Um, before we wrap up, things just a general public service announcement. We're probably going to do half of the Dark Tower. Oh, yeah, we definitely, yeah. And then I honestly think we, we've been discussing also an entire, like, after we're done, let's talk about the epilogue mm -hmm. and final thoughts. So there might be a 14th episode attached yeah, to yeah. it. Now, I have, I have some question for you. Knocking around this idea, like maybe we do other Stephen King books and relate it to the Dark Tower. Well, let me ask you, mid or I'm sorry, Wheel of Ka fans. Yeah. When we are done with the Dark Tower, would you like to hear Stephen King books discussed by Derek and Steve? Yeah. If like you, under the guise of the Tower, how it relates back to the Dark Tower. I mean, one thing that I have not read that I think might be fun to give a wheel of con treatment to would be Salem's lot. Yeah. I mean, my wife finished it not too long ago and said we would love it, but I'm going to leave that up to you. The fans of the podcast, tell us what you want us to do once we're done. Yeah. Because we are close to the end here, oh, man. If you want us to continue doing Stephen King work, tell us what you want us to do when you want us to do it. Maybe we can plan that. Life is busy and crazy, uh, but I think there's room. And thanks. If you've come, this far with us, you know, if you can do two more, if you can come to the end of the tower with us, it would, it would personally mean a lot to me. I can tell you that. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, without further ado, long days and pleasant nights, long days and pleasant nights. Mm -hmm.